Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. Today, I want to talk about a sensitive issue. I want to talk about men and women working together uh, in ministry leadership responsibilities. And I've entitled this podcast Beyond the Billy Graham Rule. Now, Billy Graham, as you probably know, was uh, the most well-known evangelist and possibly well-known evangelical Christian in the 20th century. When Billy Graham started his organization, evangelists had a bad reputation. They had a reputation for being uh, womanizers and for misusing money and for other kinds of uh, loose behavior, if you will, that brought disrepute uh, to their organizations and, more importantly, to the kingdom of God. And so Billy Graham and his team uh, set out from the beginning to set a different moral culture in their organization, and one of the things they enacted in their organization was this uh, this, pr- this practice called the Billy Graham Rule. And the Billy Graham Rule was very simple. No man will ever be alone with any other woman than his wife. No man would ever be alone with any other woman but his wife. Now, that worked well in a previous generation. But it really doesn't work that well today. Now, I'm not saying we need less of a standard than the Billy Graham rule advocated. Instead, I think we actually need more. There are at least two reasons why the Billy Graham rule is just not sufficient for today. The first is that there are far more women in leadership roles in the workforce than there were in the 1940s and early 1950s when Billy Graham started his organization. There are many more women in leadership roles in both ministry and secular contexts. And because of that, these working relationships are much more common, men working with women, and they are uh, much more uh, clearly defined, and they have many more uh, dimensions than in a previous generation. There are many women today that serve on the faculty, for example, of schools like ours, and there are others who serve as director-level employees in church organizations and in ministry organizations. There are all kinds of women serving on church staffs in all kinds of ministerial and support and sometimes even pastoral roles. And there are certainly more and more women in the secular workforce having uh, positions of significant responsibility in those locations. And so one of the reasons that I think the Billy Graham rule is not sufficient for today is the rising number of women who are in these roles and the uh, ways that men and women are working together in greater numbers than ever before in any previous generation of Christian leadership. Now, I want to clearly say I don't see that necessarily as a bad thing. I just see it as a reality of how the world has changed which means we're going to have to make some adjustments in terms of how we manage these expectations. The second reason why the Billy Graham rule is not sufficient for today, though, is it only focuses on men relating to women, and particularly men relating to younger women. One of the deficiencies in that is the rise of homosexual behavior, homosexual temptation, and the prominence of same-sex relationships in our world. 
This came home to me uh, not long ago when one of our professors talked with me about a dilemma that he had faced for the first time uh, in consulting with a young, younger male youth pastor. Here at Gateway, in our youth ministry classes, we, of course, teach about the proper ways for youth ministers to relate to uh, students in their ministries of the opposite sex. But in this particular case, a male youth pastor came to our professor and said, I have a dilemma to discuss, and I I need your help. He said, I have always discipled young men one-on-one, and I've discipled many of them successfully, meeting one-on-one for Bible study, prayer, and ministry activity and involvement together. He said, recently, however, uh, I had a young man come to me, and in the context of our conversation, He actually said, I'm attracted to you physically, and I wonder if you feel the same way toward me. For the first time, this youth pastor was being um, approached about a sexual relationship, not by a young woman, but instead by a young man. And so now we've readjusted our curriculum here at Gateway to actually help youth pastors, men, uh, youth, youth, youth pastors and youth leaders, both men and women, to understand how to work with both men and women in ministry context and work with young men and young women in ministry context in appropriate ways. So for all these reasons, I think the Billy Graham rule, while it was helpful in its day, is not sufficient for what we need to be practicing today to maintain really wholesome working relationships between men and women in ministry organizations. For the balance of the podcast now, I'd like to talk about some foundational convictions about men and women working together, and then some practical guidelines or some best practices that will help you along the way. Now, these foundational convictions are some statements that you can establish in your mind that give you a foundation upon which you can build your practical outworking or your practical decision-making. Now, I'm going to give you five guidelines or five best practices in just a moment, But you may have more than that. You may have some additions to that. So think about the foundational convictions first, and then we'll erect on that foundation some ideas. So first, the first foundational conviction about men and women working together in a ministry context is to respect each other as colleagues, especially coworkers in this regard. Respect each other as colleagues, both men and women equally. Now, this actually has a theological grounding. It's respect based on our value as persons made in the image of God. It's respect based on our value as brothers and sisters redeemed and made equal and unified in the kingdom of God. It's also respect based on competency and performance. So we say that we have respect for both men and women in the workforce and men and women in ministry relationships because we are made in the image of God and we are brothers and sisters in relationship with Jesus Christ and then we have demonstrated competency and we have performed adequately and because of these things, we have mutual respect in the workplace. Mutual respect, it's foundational to so many other things. Respect based on the image of God and our value as brothers and sisters in Christ. Respect based on our competence and performance. But nevertheless, respect for each other 
as foundational. Now, a second foundational conviction is that you're going to identify sexist habits and root them out of your organization and work to overcome them in your thinking. Uh, let me give you some examples of what I mean. One sexist habit in many uh, organizations is uh, fostering an environment where, where women are perceived as a threat. We have a woman that works here at Gateway who uh, told me that in a, form, in a previous Christian organization where she worked, that when a man would get on the elevator with her, he would always, as she put it, scooch over as far as possible to the edge of the elevator as to avoid any hint of a contact or even a contamination from her. She always found that so disheartening. I mean, obviously, people stand a normal, reasonable distance apart in an elevator. But just this idea of looking at her, kind of the corner of his eye, and then, and then, and then edging away to make sure he was as far away as possible. She said to me, when this happened, and it happened repeatedly in our organization, I realized the undergirding thought in this organization is that somehow women are a threat, that, that we're somehow going to do something evil or harmful or contaminating just by being close to us in a place like an elevator for a few seconds. She found that very disheartening, and I think I would too if I were in her situation. I found it interesting that she was telling me this story while we were riding the elevator together. I got on normally, stood my normal distance from a person that I would normally stand apart from in an elevator, men or women, and rode the elevator to the next floor. If anything like this, which fosters an environment where women or men are perceived as a threat, you need to root that out of your organization. Another part of this sexist habit issue is you can't tolerate derogatory comments or jokes about women or about men. Now, obviously, Humor has a place in the workplace. It has a place in ministry relationships. It has a place in the church office. And occasionally, men or women do something that is stereotypical of who we are, and it's funny. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is a person who makes repeated derogatory jokes about men or women that has within that derogatory humor some hostile humor which is clearly designed to denigrate, to tear down, to establish and maintain this sense of sexist work or sexist environment that really contributes to a negative work environment. And then here's another one, uh, and, and this one is is again often found in Christian organizations, and that is facilitating male cultural norms in organizations without regard to women. Uh, for example, uh, in your organization, when the whole team goes out to lunch, does everybody go to a steakhouse? <laughs> when you're or in your organization, when everybody goes out for an activity, do you go to a ball game? Well, some women enjoy steakhouses and ball games, and I don't mean to stereotype that they can't. But I'm just saying, did you ask the team what would be mutually beneficial for everyone before you made those decisions, or did you just default to what would often be perceived as a male cultural norm, steakhouses and ball games as a place of celebrating fellowship or reward for the team being together. When, what I'm trying to say is that a foundational conviction about men and women working together is that you identify sexist habits and you remove them from your organization as best you can, and you definitely remove them from your working relationships as much as possible. Now you may say, well, how do I even know what those are? Well, let me give you two simple suggestions. Number one, get some training. 
get some training. Take advantage of online uh, HR training that's available. Take advantage of training that's made specifically for churches and Christian organizations. Uh, Watch a video, read a book, uh, do something to better yourself in this area. Take some training. But even beyond that, what I found to be much simpler, much more direct, and quite frankly, just about as helpful, listen to your coworkers. Have a frank conversation with the men or the women that you work with and say, are there any sexist attitudes in our organization that need to be uh, removed? Are there any practices that we sort of default to that reinforce sexual stereotypes in our organization? Uh, Are we tolerating uh, too many derogatory jokes or too many uh, negative comments? I mean, occasionally, yeah, humorous thing happens and we all laugh at that. But I mean, we're tolerating something that really has within it some hostility that's designed to facilitate or to foster this kind of negative context or culture. Listen to your colleagues. Simply have an honest conversation. And when they say something, rather than being defensive, try to take it in, learn from it, and implement it. I remember a few years ago here at Gateway, I made an offhand comment in a hallway conversation, uh, joking about something. And the next day, a student uh, asked for an appointment and came to my office. This was a student that uh, I had had a previous encounter with that had been very positive. Uh, she was a student that uh, had a good reputation on campus. Uh, she seemed to be a, a very capable student in my interactions with her. So she asked for an appointment to see me, and I was glad to glad to do that. She entered my office, and she said, uh, Dr. Orge, you said something yesterday that was a very racist comment. But I was shocked. I I had no idea. And she said, here's what you said, and, and here's why I think it's a racist comment. Well, when she said that to me, my first response was, that's not how I meant it. But my second response was, but that's how she heard it. And so rather than become defensive, I apologized. And I said, uh, I am not uh, a racist, and I do not intend to make racist comments. And this one, as you've heard it, certainly was that for you, and I apologize. And beyond that, I want to thank you for bringing this directly to my attention and giving me the opportunity to resolve it with you. And I want to commit to you that I'm not going to say that anymore. Now, frankly, in my mind, I wasn't sure that it was quite as bad as she thought it was. But that wasn't the point. The point was, here was a young woman, a student, bringing a comment to my attention that she felt had some sexist, racist overtones. And she wanted me to acknowledge that, and so I did. And then I went beyond that and said, I'm going to move on from that. And I have. I've never used that phrase again, as far as I know, in any conversation since then. Now, what I'm trying to say is this going the extra mile in conversation will help you go a long way toward rooting out some of these issues in your organization. So, first foundational conviction, respect. Second, eliminating sexist habits as much as possible. And third, clarify, another convictional foundation is to clarify the primary role that people have in working together and understand that those roles have implications. For example, if it's two people that are employee to employee, then that's more than being friend to friend or church member to church member. An employee-to-employee relationship, whether it's co-workers or supervisor-to-employee, those 
relationships actually have legal definition of what is appropriate within them. And so it's very significant as you clarify roles and expectations to understand who you're relating to and what are some of the rules, regulations, and even laws that determine and dis- that those relationships. For me, it's important to know whether I'm a friend to a friend, a coworker to a coworker, an employee to, a, to an employee, a supervisor to a subordinate, uh, uh, or even some combination of these things, and making sure that I understand that these different relationships do call for some different kinds of interaction that may be appropriate in one context and not so much in another. So we're going to respect coworkers, root out things that are derogatory and that are intentionally destructive, and that we are going to then clarify the primary roles we have with people and work hard to understand how those role definitions impact the relationships that we have. Now, on those foundations, then, let's talk about five practical guidelines for men and women working together that will help you to go beyond the Billy Graham rule to preserve a healthy working relationship while at the same time protecting both men and women from accusation, from exposure, from any kind of inappropriate uh, relationship that might be harmful, not only to them, to their relationships, but also to the work they're doing. So here's the first one. My first practical guideline is no secret meetings with anyone. No secret meetings with anyone. No secret meetings if you're a man with men or women, if you're a woman with women or men. No secret meetings. Now you might say, wait a second, I'm a ministry leader. I have to have one-on-one meetings with people. I, I have to talk about confidential and sometimes very sensitive issues. All right, listen carefully. A one-on-one meeting is not a secret meeting. It's a private meeting. And there is a very big difference between a secret meeting and a private meeting. I have private meetings all the time. They are scheduled through my assistant. They take place in my office. And they are without anyone present other than the person who wants to see me uh, and me in, those, in, that, uh, in that context. That's a private meeting. A private meeting is, again, scheduled through my assistant, takes place in my office, and it includes just me and the person in the conversation. Now, this is private in the sense that only the two of us knows what's talked about, but it's not secret. It's not secret for two very important reasons. One, my assistant knows it's happening. And number two, there's a window on the door of my office. When we built the new facility here in Ontario, one of the things I insisted on is that that every door in the facility have a window in it, a glass, if you will. Well, this at first was a big problem because all the doors have to be fire rated and getting glass in them is expensive and getting the kind of doors that have the glass that's fire rated is a difficult thing. And I insisted. And every door in our building has a glass in it. Why? Because we don't want there to be any secret meetings in this facility. Private meetings all the time. Students meeting with faculty, faculty meeting with faculty, employees meeting with employees, supervisors meeting with subordinates, 
goes on all the time in this facility. Men meeting with men, men meeting with women. All the time, private, never secret. A secret meeting is when you schedule it, no one else knows about it. You schedule it and put it in a place no one else can see. And you go there with someone that you're meeting with to talk about something that no one else can even know happened. So no secret meetings. Private meetings, yes. Secret meetings, never. Second guideline, no touching in workplace relationships beyond a handshake greeting. No touching. Now, I would extend this to say no touching in ministry leadership context, meaning pastor to church member or pastor to parishioner or church member to church member. No touching except for a handshake greeting. Uh, This means, particularly here in the workplace, no hand-holding while praying. No hugs when someone is hurting. Uh, No playing footsies under the table. No back rubs. No pats on the back. Uh, No nothing like that. I've had to deal with a number of situations over the years where there was inappropriate touching in a ministry context, in an employment context, or in a church context. And over and over and over again, those inappropriate moments did not start with an inappropriate touch. They started with a friendly one. Now, you say, but I'm a hugger. Well, so am I. I'm an extrovert. I like to pat people on the back, give them a hug. Uh, I I am a very uh, expressive person, but I've had to significantly curtail that by my own choice and by and out of an abundance of discretion over the years so that now uh, I just don't touch people in the workplace. I will give a handshake greeting and that's it. Now you might see, say, well, that just seems legalistic to me. And I would encourage you to rethink that position. We are living in a world today that is fraught with difficulty, misunderstanding, and the misinterpretation of even things like gestures of touch. And so, unless you are related to the person or you have a strong uh, relationship that would, uh, would permit this, and unless it's something that you are, know that both of you are totally comfortable with, I would suggest no touching at all. Third, no private media accounts. Now, in terms of relating men to women, you might wonder, well, how does this one exactly apply? Well, it's because in our world today, uh, while uh, private meetings and touching are a problem and have been for a long time, a third and new dimension to this is that a lot of these relationships ultimately start at or are facilitated by what goes on through social media what goes on through media and through social media, meaning what goes on as you exchange pictures, photographs, videos, etc. And as you post on each other's social media accounts and as you maintain private accounts, etc. Now, this may surprise you because you think, well, boy, as president, don't you have to have a lot of secret information? And the answer to that is I just simply can't afford to have secret information. Now, I have private information and confidential information, but not secret information, meaning 
that my wife and my executive assistant have access to all my accounts. They know all my passwords. Uh, They see my devices and can access them when needed. No private accounts, no private devices. That means that my wife could pick up my iPad at any time, punch in my password, and look at everything on there that I've ever looked at or that I have in, that I have on there or that I have ever accessed. So could my executive assistant. No private accounts. Now beyond that, because I work at the seminary, the seminary IT department actually has access to all my electronics. They have access to my cell phone because the seminary helps pay for that. They have access to my computer because the seminary provides that. And because of that, they have access to all the things that I ever do on those devices. Now, you may say, well, nobody should have that that access. You're a president. You should be able to do what you want. You shouldn't have anybody looking over your shoulder. That is completely wrong. It's exactly the opposite. Because I am the president, I should have the most transparency, not the least, the most. You say, well, yeah, but you have to trust those people to not misuse the information. Absolutely. I absolutely do have to trust them. And that's why it's very, very important that we have good hiring practices and good uh, uh, evaluative practices so that these people remain trustworthy with this information that they've been given as they have access into my life. So guidelines, no secret meetings, no touching, no private accounts or secret devices. Now, Number four, I think another thing that will help you to manage men-women relationships or men-men-women-women relationships and organizations is a limited gifts policy. Now, I have really for myself a no-gifts policy. I, I do not give gifts to employees or people I work with. And you say, wow, boy, that's hard-hearted because one of my, you know, my love language is gifts. Well, fine, I understand that. But you have to find a way to express that that isn't creating an opportunity for misunderstanding. Now, for example, I have a policy, no extravagant Christmas or birthday gifts, period. In fact, I prefer no gifts, and I tell the people that I work with I prefer no gifts. Now, I'm not a jerk about it. I had an assistant once who said, but I love giving small gifts, and I I really want to get you something for your birthday. And she said, can I get you one cupcake? With a, with, a, with a one on it for a candle. And I said, you can get me one cupcake. And so she would come in on my birthday with one cupcake, and she would say, here's your birthday cake. And we'd, all, we'd cut it in four pieces, and we'd all in the office have a bite. That's fine. I'm not going to be a jerk about it. But I do not want my assistant exchanging extravagant gifts with me or even meaningful or even personal gifts, and I'm certainly not going to exchange them with her. Now, I don't give these kinds of gifts to men or women. I have both men and women on the president's staff here at Gateway in my office, on my team, and I don't give gifts to either one of them. Now, you might say, well, you're kind of hard-hearted about this, especially like around Christmas time or something like that. Listen how we get around this, this this part of the conviction in a healthy way. My wife gives the gifts. And so every year at Christmas, my wife prepares a small little gift for the people that we work with, and she gives the gifts on our behalf. 
to my assistant, to her assistant, and to the, even the male assistant that works in our office. And by doing this, she says, we want, Jeff and I both want you to know how much we appreciate the service that you provide and the work you do. We found this to be a very healthy way to avoid the appearance that I'm giving gifts to try to curry favor with people or to establish some kind of inappropriate relationship. And then the last thing I would say on these guidelines, and that is to monitor travel carefully. You know, my assistant and I do not travel together. We, we uh, work hard when we are in the same location together to make sure that there's no appearance of evil attached to our travel. Uh, one time uh, I was traveling, my assistant was traveling, we were at the same meeting uh, in uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, and we wound up with hotel rooms on the same floor. And she said, I will make sure this never happens again. And we just had to make sure that even when we went up to our rooms during that time of that convention, that we never went up there alone or together or anything like that, even because we didn't want to be seen on the same floor together of a hotel. And when something happens on the road like that, where it's just an unavoidable situation, for example, one time I was traveling to speak at a church and they said they were sending someone to pick me up at the airport. And I said, you know, that'll be great. And when they, when I got to the airport, the way it worked out, they had sent a woman to pick me up. And I felt a little uncomfortable about that, quite frankly, but I got in the car and what did I do? I immediately called my wife. I said, hey, Ann, guess what? I got picked up at the airport and uh, this delightful person, I told her name, is here picking me up and uh, I wanted you to know that that was who I was riding with and what we were doing and we can just visit here for the car in a minute. If you'd like to talk with her, that'd be great. She'd love to meet you. And I just wanted my wife to know where I was and what was going on in case any question was ever raised. That happens rarely, but when it does happen, you always try to find a way to make sure that you understand, the person with you understand, and even your wife or your assistant or your board chairman or someone understands the situation you're in and why you want to be accountable for it in the moment. Well, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, thank God for Billy Graham, who had the courage in his day to set out a new rule that helped shape his organization in a healthy way. But what was appropriate in 1950s, 1960s, and even up through the latter part of the 20th century just really isn't sufficient for today. We have to go beyond that. So let's go beyond the Billy Graham rule. Rather than just one simple rule, no men, no women together in a ministry, in a ministry organization setting, let's understand that's not really going to work for us today. But some other things can be made to work. We can lay out some foundational convictions about how we're going to work together. And we can create some practical policy statements above that, some best practices, if you will, that will help preserve our integrity and the rightness of these relationships. This is a challenging area. It's easy to be legalistic in this area, but it's even easier to be licentious and to do things which will ultimately lead us into some really bad situations. Don't make either mistake, but instead, Make the balanced balanced decision of making some good choices to create some best practices that will help you to implement some good standards about how to maintain the right kind of working relationships in your ministry organization and in your church. Put these into practice as you lead on.